Well, good morning, City Light South. I hope that all of you are staying warm uh, wherever you are, that you've been able to do that this week. Uh, I am really excited to jump into God's Word. We are in, still in Mark. We, this is the very last week that we're going to be in Mark for a while. We've, we're wrapping up this series we've called Jesus Explored. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn open to Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 27, and we're going to go up to the very beginning, the very first verse of chapter 9. And that's where we're going to leave uh, Mark for now. But I, we're leaving really at a, at a good spot, at, at a real high watermark in, in Mark's gospel. And I'm really excited for the series that we have coming up next. We're going to have a few, uh, quite a number of guest uh, speakers, guest preachers over the next few weeks, which I will tell you about later on. Uh, but for now, uh, let's, let's jump into Mark. And, and remember that central question, because that's really where we're going to end up. We're going to finish with the question we started with, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And not only who is Jesus, but then what difference does he make? What difference does the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus who is Lord, what difference does that make in, in your life and in mine? It's not enough just to uh, see what others say about Jesus. We need to answer that question, that central question of who Jesus is for ourselves. But before we do that, let me just spend a moment in prayer and ask the God uh, through his Holy Spirit uh, to come and uh, guide us as we listen to his word today. So join me in pray. Father, thank you that we can gather again around your unchanging word. Lord, guide us by your Holy Spirit into truth this morning. Help us to see uh, the, the beautiful things that you have to, to show us, to teach us. Challenge our hearts. Make us more like you. Help us to see your agenda, that we might lay down our agenda um, for what you have prepared for us. So humble us in that way, God, we pray. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 8. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start reading in verse 27, and I'll make some comments as we go. Uh, so verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. So Jesus is back on the road with his disciples. He's traveling up north, just a little bit north of his usual stomping grounds around the Sea of Galilee, uh, up to the higher elevations around uh, Caesarea Philippi. And, and this is a side point, but just something no, interesting with Mark's account. You ever notice how many of these great conversations happen while they're traveling? Like they're in a boat or they're, or they're on the road. So many things the disciples are learning just on the way. If you think that you're a disciple uh, just when Jesus is sort of teaching the crowds, just in these sort of pre-planned, uh, premeditated moments, then I think you, you've missed it. Jesus here is living out uh, Deuteron what I call the Deuteronomy 6 principle of discipleship. That is whole of life disciple. There's never a bad moment 
to reflect on who Jesus is and, and, and to listen to his words and then apply those to the heart. Um, you know, whether you're, whether you're out traveling in, you know, in your car, that's a good time. Uh, whether you're at home with your family, that's a good time too. Whether you're at work, that's a great time. Whether you're about to go to sleep, that's a good time. Whether you're about to get up in the, just, or just after you get up in the morning, all of those are great times to listen to what the Holy Spirit is doing, to, to really meditate on, on God's Word, and to align your thinking, your priorities, your joy uh, with, with God's will for you. Every moment of your life belongs to Him, the one who made you. So Jesus takes this particular moment with the disciples and he poses this question. Who, who is it that people are saying that I am? What are, what are people saying about me? And you know, if Jesus was one of my friends at this point, I might think, man, why are you asking this? Are you like maybe a little insecure? You're just trying to you know, get the gossip that what are people saying behind my back sort of thing. But Jesus here makes it pretty clear. He's, he's not really doing this for his own benefit, is he? he he's not trying to figure out who he is because he's having some kind of an existential crisis. No, this question is for the disciples' benefit. Who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples, they, they quickly, they're diplomatic, you know? They're going to be good politicians. They, don't, they, get, they start off with some of the good things people are saying about Jesus. Well, you're a lot like John the Baptist. Remember, we already saw that with Herod back in chapter 6. Herod actually thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead that he was kind of John Baptist's ghosts. Um, other people were kind of saying, look, oh, he has the spirit of John the Baptist. You know, like in the, back in the Old Testament, you had examples of one prophet would pass on his spirit to his successor. So Moses passed on to Joshua, Elijah on to Elisha. And so I think that's what kind of people are saying here. He has the spirit of John the Baptist because they're so similar. Other people said, no, he has the spirit of Elijah. And, and people were kind of waiting for this prophet who had the spirit of Elijah to come onto the scene. They say, maybe he's, that's who, that's who Jesus is. He's that guy. Other people, you know, point to one of the other prophets. God's power is clearly at work in Jesus. And, you know, they don't list off the nasty things that people were saying about Jesus, but we, we have seen those already in Mark. If you go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 22, you've got the Pharisees there saying, Jesus, man, I think... We think that you're actually working for the enemy. You're, you're working for Satan. You're, you're demon-possessed. Then the, there were the people that Jesus grew up with in Nazareth. Remember what they said? They said, Jesus, who do you, man, who do you think you are? You're just a carpenter. You're just, one, you're just one of us. Stop acting like you're so much more important than we are. Remember the teachers of the law, you know, they thought Jesus was a lawbreaker, that he was teaching his disciples to be lawbreakers, and that he hung out with lawbreakers. You know, today we've got the same buffet of responses. If you were to go out on the street or just do a random survey of your Facebook friends and, you know, ask that same question, who, who's Jesus? Who, who, who do you say Jesus is? What do you think? You'd, you'd get all sorts of answers, depending on who you ask. If you asked one of your uh, Muslim friends or neighbors, you might, they might say, well, Jesus is, that he really did exist. He, he, he was a, he's a prophet. He, he did lots of good things. He had, he had miraculous powers. And he's coming back to, to judge uh, between good and evil. That's what, that's what the Quran says about Jesus. Um, if you ask a skeptic, you might say, well, maybe he existed, maybe he didn't. 
But if he did exist, he certainly was just a, a, a man. And he, he probably got killed for being a revolutionary. Um, he just made the wrong people angry. And he's got some good things to say, but he's certainly not God. If, what if you ask just a typical Australian? You know, what, if, if this was like the, you know, on the goggle box, what, you know, people were asking this, what, who is Jesus? How would they react to him? How they react to what he was on about in Mark? Um, they say, "Oh, you know, he's pretty, pretty good bloke, right? Did some pretty cool stuff. You know, we, well, I kind of like some of his teachings. Some of his teachings are a bit weird, but I've never really looked into him myself." That that probably be the I would say the typical Australian answer these days. Um, there are surveys that really back this up. Surveys say that about four out of ten Australians believe that Jesus is God, meaning the majority believe he's, he's not. They don't believe that. Four out of ten believe he's God and that he probably rose from the dead. But then the weird thing is, is that only one out of those four people who believe that Jesus is God um, would typically go to church on a Sunday. So that means there's three out of ten people in Australia who believe the right things about Jesus, but it makes no impact whatsoever on their lives, which is, which is interesting. We'll come back to that. So Jesus turns the question from an academic survey to, uh, you know, what are, what are the punters out there saying to something very personal? He, he turns to them and he says, but you, you, who do you say that I am? You know, if there was the, you're a poll, like, you know, there's a poll going out there, who are you going to vote for? And Peter kind of is the spokesman of the group and he turns and, and gives <clears throat> the correct answer. He, he speaks for the group and says, you are the Messiah. And I'll, I'll explain what that means in just a second. But, you know, he, none of the, the, these other answers that people were giving weren't necessarily wrong. They just weren't complete. And, 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 and we know that this idea of Jesus being the Messiah is probably the, one of the more complete answers he could have given because if you read Matthew's account of the same thing happening in Matthew chapter 16, the same conversation, Jesus looks at Peter after he confesses that he's the Christ, the Messiah, and he says, blessed are you, Peter, because you didn't get this answer from your friends. You got this directly from God. You got this answer directly from God. So back to Mark. Jesus hears Peter's answer, you're the Messiah, and the first thing he does, you don't get the blessing here in Mark's account. He, he says, um, guys, don't tell any, don't you dare go using that title, Messiah, out in public. You, you need to be quiet. Because if you do, this is what he's saying, if you do use this title, if you go around saying the Messiah is here, there's going to be consequences. And they're going to be pretty serious ones. It'd be a bit like me today going out on social media and saying, uh, Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. And I don't have a lot of followers on social media, but I guarantee you there would be some way if I said that it would get out there and I get all the like LeBron fans would come onto my page and be like, no, you are wrong, like eternally wrong. It would get, it would have, con words have consequences. And so Jesus is saying, guys, not right now. It's not the time to go using this title, Messiah. Who was the Messiah? Let me, let me explain that a little bit more. The Messiah was a specific role, a specific person that all the Jewish people in Jesus' day were expecting 
God to bring and send on the scene. The Messiah is simply the Hebrew word that means anointed one or chosen one. So the, a lot of the kings, even some of the pagan kings like Cyrus in the Old Testament were considered <clears throat> God's anointed leaders of the people. And so the Messiah was someone that they expected to come back in kind of the end times, the end of the, the, end of the age. God would send to gather all of his scattered people, unite the tribes of Israel with the capital in Jerusalem, and then sit on the throne of David to rule in righteousness and peace and justice. So he's, a, he's going to be the, the king of all kings over God's people, but very much a human. That's, that's who people expected the Messiah to be. And so you can understand then, if somebody was to go around saying, I'm the Messiah, and there's an actual king on an actual throne, he's not going to like that very much, is he? Which is why you see people like Herod um, hearing the messianic prophecies and he's a bit concerned. Fast forward to when Jesus is actually killed, when he's executed by the Romans on the cross. They put the charges against him on the cross. They say that he's the king of the Jews, indicating that that's why he died, because he claimed to be a king. He, he, he's executed as a, as a traitor, as a revolutionary. That's what the Messiah is. But see, the Messiah, the real Messiah, Jesus, he's not coming to usurp the throne, at least not, not at first. Jesus is coming to, to, to sit on the throne, but he's coming to sit first on the throne of the hearts of individual men and women before he sits on the throne in Jerusalem. So he's not what these guys were expecting but he is the Messiah. Peter answers correctly, full marks for his answer. He finally knows who Jesus is, but he still doesn't really understand. They don't really understand what difference it makes, what difference it's gonna make in the world. They've got a lot of wrong assumptions that Jesus has to, is gonna to have to deconstruct. And, and the, the back half of Mark is, is the beginning of this deconstruction, Jesus tearing down their ideas and their agendas and replacing them with truth and with God's agenda. So let's, let's see this begin in verse 31. Mark writes, Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So right off the bat of Peter's confession that Jesus is Messiah, that he's the Christ, he's the long-awaited helper and rescuer of God's people, Israel. Here's what Jesus says that means. Note, Jesus doesn't call himself Messiah or Christ. He prefers the title Son of Man, but very similar implications. He's God's rescuer, he's fully human. The so God's rescuer, he's not going to do it in the ordinary way. He's not going to come in and announce his presence wearing a cape and carrying a shield and a sword. He's not going to suit up in the latest gear. What's he going to do? He's not going to win at the ballot box or by, you know, roasting all of his opponents on social media. Hero of the story, Jesus the Messiah is going to win by suffering. 
he's going to defeat death by dying, by being rejected, by being killed by his enemies. And Peter, who just got this HD on his theology exam, thinks now that he's smarter than the teacher. Well, well, actually, Jesus, you know, we, we've seen what you can do. We finally get it. We, we know that you can make bread out of nothing. We know that you can have power over nature. We know that you have power over Satan. We know you have power over death. What, what's all this nonsense about you dying and being killed? Come on, that's not going to happen, Jesus. And then, it's, I mean, Peter, he's rebuking Jesus. And then what happens? Jesus turns right back around with the counter rebuke. And it's pretty strong. Like he makes sure that everyone is watching and he says these words, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns right now. You're not doing battle for God. You're you're doing battle for the flesh. You're doing battle for the enemy. What does Jesus mean here? Why Why is he so strong? How is it that Peter's agenda and the disciples' agenda is so different here to God's agenda? Why? I mean, think about why Peter rebuked Jesus in the first place. It isn't, I think, because he didn't want Jesus to die, because that would be a lament, and it doesn't fit with Mark's purpose. The reason Peter rebuked Jesus is that he couldn't see. He just could not understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. He did not understand the, en- the, the real enemy, the, the, the nature of the enemy that they were up against. He didn't understand the heart of the problem. And so the agenda that they come up with is not God's agenda. Because they can't see what he's doing and they don't know the battle they're fighting. I mean, I wonder, have you ever wondered if your own agenda is in line with God's agenda? If you're in the center of God's will, and we, we talk like that sometimes. Here's a good way to test that. How do you respond to suffering, to the notion of suffering, of hardship? Peter didn't like Jesus talking about suffering. It wasn't part of the plan. And for most of us, we don't want it to be part of the plan either. We, you know, I, I don't know if you've like me, I've, I've experienced seasons of suffering and my response is, you know, God, this is not what I signed up for. I don't, I don't want this. This is not fair. After all that I've done for you, how could you let this happen? It's too hard. Now, every situation is different. So I'm, I'm not saying this, that, you know, I'm not wanting you to get into that discussion of did God cause this or did he allow this? I'm not, that's not where I'm going. What I want you to see here for this, from this text is that God's agenda, God's agenda is not simply about avoiding hardship, avoiding pain and maximizing pleasure. That is never God's agenda. God can use pleasure to accomplish his purposes and he can use pain and he often does both. We know that the gospel addresses not just temporal suffering, but the gospel addresses the reason behind suffering, which is what's going on in our hearts. Our hearts are not just 
experiencing pain. Our hearts are separated from God because of our own sin. Peter's biggest problem that he's got to face, it's not the Roman invaders. It's not even the Pharisees. It's the sin in his own heart, and that's what he can't see. And and it's suffering. It's Jesus' suffering, and then later on his own, that is going to finally make him see. Your biggest problem, it's not what's going on outside of you. It's not persecution against Christians. It's not the coronavirus. It's not the left-wingers. It's not the right-wingers. Your biggest problem and my biggest problem is what's going on in our own hearts. And if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he's really the rescuer, if he's really your rescuer and my rescuer, then that's where he's got to go. He comes to address the problem inside and deal with that, not just the symptoms. And that says something about the Christian life. And I'm going to make this statement and I'm going to unpack it from Mark here. The Christian life, the Christian life, the life of the Jesus follower is not simply, it's not about seeking pain and it's not about avoiding pain. It's about bearing the cross of Christ in hope of glory. It's not pain seeking. It's not pain avoiding. It's cross carrying in hope of glory. In the first eight chapters of Mark, the disciples are on this journey to understand the question of who is Jesus? And Mark introduces him right at the beginning, verse 1, chapter 1. Jesus, the Son, the Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 8, the disciples finally get that. They finally get that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And now in the rest of Mark's account, the disciples still need to understand what kind of Messiah he'll be. Once they know who Jesus is, what difference does it make for their lives? How are they different? You know, we're going to take a long break, as I said, from Mark after this week. But let me tell you that Jesus doesn't just predict his death here once in chapter 8. He does it three times. Three times. Once in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And each time he predicts his own death. He's going to teach the disciples about the essence of the Christian life. What is a disciple? What is discipleship? Every single time there's a cost. There's a cost. Let's look at verse 34 of chapter 8. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels." Chapter 9, then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And before I comment on this passage, I want to set up just a bit of a thought experiment. I, I mean, if God was to completely check out from the world, what would happen? If we were all left to follow our own devices and our own agendas, what would that be like? Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, probably be like how things are now. There's all sorts of tragedy and and violence and war in the world, and it'll probably just be more of the same. But let me tell you this. 
even despite the tumult and tragedy of our present age, the evidence of God's grace and his restraint on evil is everywhere. If God was to check out completely from the universe, then Darwin's law, the law of natural selection, would take over. It's the survival of the fittest. Every woman, every man for herself or himself. There would be no loyalty, no neighborliness, no family ties left. Everything would break down. Just a world full of scared and hungry individuals trying to survive. Me and my needs become the very center of everything. You know, because that's how I was born. I was born into the world knowing and learning how to survive. Being very aware of what I need and what I want. Then Jesus came along and said, Tyler, I want you to stop thinking solely about what you need and what you want. I want you to repent. I want you to stop relying on yourself and rely on me to give you what you need. And I said, you know, I can't do that, Jesus, because if I don't look out for number one, then nobody will. You don't know what I've been through. Jesus said, I will look after you. I'm your shepherd. You know, you were born into the world. I was born into the world in love with yourself. But you need to be reborn into the world and deny yourself. That's the Christian life. Jesus said to the disciples in the crowds and to you and me, he said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. That is the heart of the Christian life. If you want to live for Christ, then you first have to die to yourself. Put your own agenda on the shelf. Some of us come into life like the rich young ruler. We've got privilege upon privilege upon privilege. We've never really known suffering. We've got opportunities. We've got our people. We've got our stuff. Others of us have it tough. We come into life with just barely the clothes on our backs. People have let us down. We don't have privilege. We've just learned how to survive, to overcome, and it's, it's really hard to trust anybody because of what we've been through. So for both, whether you've got privilege and you've got a, and Jesus saying, come, you lay that down and trust me, or whether you've got nothing and Jesus says, even though you've been abused, you trust me. See, it's a tough call, no matter who you are and what you've come into the world with. This teaching, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you don't think that's hard, then you don't get what he's saying. Because it's excruciating. That word excruciating actually has the word cross in it. Cross-bearing discipleship. Jesus goes on, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. See, Jesus is raising a flag for all potential disciples. He says there's a cost of following him. Salvation is a free gift. It's by faith alone, through grace alone. But what you gain from that free gift is a heart that is now free, not, from, not just from sin, but free to follow Jesus, to be totally devoted to him, to be undivided, to latch on, to grasp on to, to chase after nothing else except Jesus. That's true freedom. 
You can't follow Jesus and hold on to your sin. You can't follow Jesus and hold on to your bitterness. You can't follow Jesus and hold on to your pride or your lust or your greed. You might even lose your life. But all that is worth it to gain Christ. That's the call of the gospel. The shame of all shames is to try and grip tightly onto the things of this life and this world that are passing away all the way to the grave. It's a tragedy. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of, ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And to be ashamed of the words of Jesus is to make him second place in your life. It means advancing your own or my own agenda above his agenda. And we are so good at that. I'm so good at that. That's what Peter wanted. That's why he rebuked Jesus here. He wanted to control Jesus. He wanted Jesus as the genie in the lamp. No suffering, just endless wishes. I won't go over the top, Jesus. Just give me that latest iPhone. Don't send me to Africa, Jesus. I'll get to know my neighbors, I promise. There are plenty of churches that just basically affirm that kind of Christianity. That's what discipleship is. It's living your best life now. But you won't find that with Jesus because he demands yours and my total allegiance. You know, if you or I, we miss out on the Australian dream because of Jesus, then brother or sister, it is worth it. Because what does he say at the very end of the verse? He says, he says, my father is coming in glory with the angels. He's coming in glory and there's no cross. There's no hardship that will outweigh that glory. Not even death. That's why Paul would say later on to, that to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's even better. Do you believe that? The next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus makes this prophetic prediction. He says, some of you hearing this are about to experience such an amazing preview of the kingdom of God. It's going to break in. That glory is going to break in, and your eyes are going to witness it. It's going to change your priorities, Peter. It's going to change your thinking, John. It's going to change what you love, James. When you see him for who he is, it's going to change your life. They have no idea. We have no idea. Our minds are so small and caught up on small things that we, we can't even imagine it, but it's coming. The Christian life is, is cross-carrying now in hope of glory, in hope of glory. The question that Mark's been just chucking at us for these 12 weeks is, who is Jesus? And I hope that's been fruitful for you to see. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God's chosen rescuer to address the real problem of our sinful hearts. He's a shepherd who leads us to beautiful meals of abundance, feast, feasting on his word. He's the groom that's coming for his bride. But then there's that final piece of the puzzle this week. He's the suffering servant. He suffers, he lays down his life for sinners. That's radical. That's unthinkable. And it leads us to straight into the second question. What difference does it make? You know, it makes very little difference in the world if we answer the first question right. Who is Jesus? And we just tick, 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 tick. We get all the, the we say all the right answers, just like Peter. 
if those answers have no impact on the way that you live your life. You say Jesus is Lord. You say he's your savior. You say you've accepted him into your heart. That's all good. You say he died on the cross for your sins. That's true, gloriously true. But now show me, friends, show me your diary. Show me your bank balance. How are those things different because of what you believe about Jesus? What opportunities have you walked away from? How are you working toward love and reconciliation with actual people in your life because of Jesus? How are you a different husband? How are you a different wife? How are you a different parent? How are you a different employee because of the way of who Jesus is? What about your super fund? Is that what you're trusting in? Is that the legacy that you have to leave the world when you go to be with Jesus? Or are you leaving a spiritual legacy that will ripple on into eternity? For what does it benefit for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? To show up facing the creator of the universe empty-handed? Church, if this pandemic season has taught us anything, it's that God is far more creative than you and me. He's far wiser than you and me. He's more, he's more all-seeing than you and me. You know, some of the prayers that we prayed when we launched City Light South, that we would have opportunities to meet our neighbor. And eight weeks into our church gathering, we are all sent home. We're all put in time out. And the only people that we can really even see from our windows are our neighbors. Who designed that? but the creator of the universe. It's God's grace to us. That's his agenda. Do we see it? Or are we tied up with human concerns? Are we so busy working and grasping and clawing for the Australian dream of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain that we we end up being shaped and discipled by this life and this age rather than by Jesus? Every time you see who Jesus is, Every time he opens your eyes in scripture, ask the question, so what? What difference does he make? How am I different now? He is stronger than nature. He is stronger than death itself. So what? He is and always has more than enough. So what? What difference does it make? I want to show you uh, just the difference it can make in the life of a real person. Uh, Some of you would be familiar with the American pastor, Tim Keller. Uh, He's a a pastor and author of lots of books on the gospel and Christianity. And this week, um, you know, he shared some news, some very difficult news that he had been diagnosed. He'd been diagnosed with asymptomatic but very serious pancreatic cancer. And then he shared some prayer requests. He's, He's 69, by the way. Prayer requests for himself and his wife, Kathy. He said, Here's one of the ways you can pray for me. He said, for Kathy and me, that we use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and our agendas and to desire God's presence above all. Here's a man facing death and his prayer is to be weaned from the joys of the now so that he longs for the joy of God's presence. See, that kind of prayer only makes sense. It's only possible if Jesus has freed him from self-love and self-reliance. 
There's evidence of the Spirit's work in his heart. And, and you know what? There's often more evidence of the Spirit's work in your heart and in my heart in seasons of suffering than in seasons of abundance. Jesus is the one who suffered for us. He paved the way, not just as the hero with the cape, but as the suffering servant Messiah. There's no glory of Christ without the suffering of Christ. The suffering will never, ever outweigh the glory. The suffering Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he knows your name. He loves you. And that's why he is calling you. And he died to set you free from the slavery to self-love. Do you want that freedom? Do you want it? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you've given us eyes to see. Lord, it's a miracle that we can even discuss these things, that we can see them at all because our hearts are so hardwired to not see. And yet you've opened our eyes. God, may we use this sight to continue to change, to continue to transform, to continue to be useful in leading others to see you, Jesus, to see who you are, not just to get the answers right, but so that we can be transformed from the inside out, so that those of us who once were born with hearts in love with ourselves and concerned about ourselves and no one or nothing else would become completely captivated by by you, God, as we have been reconciled to you through the gospel, through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, that we might then go and be reconciled to other people, that we might be agents of your love and grace in the world. Lord, make us useful. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.